0: Amen. Thanks, Joe. Good morning, Grace Hill. How's everyone? Good. Doing all right. Everybody, make it to the festival this weekend. All right. Half of you. Great. Great. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church. If this is your first time. Just want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. We're a new church here in Hernan, Virginia. We're about a year and a half old, and uh, we're just glad that you've joined us this morning. And I'd love to be able to chat with you. After the service, uh, this morning we're going to be in uh, two different scriptures in the Bible, so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to two places, so Leviticus 10 and Second Samuel 6. So we'll read those in a few minutes so you have some time to, to make your way there. Uh, if you want to use your Bible app on your phone, that's completely fine, and we'll also have the verses on the screen uh, behind me uh, as well. But you know what? Um, sometimes in life we have to face what we would call a cold, hard truth, right? So this is a truth uh, that you cannot negotiate with. Uh, You can't bend the rules or somehow avoid the implications of this truth. It doesn't matter what you think. Let me give you an example. I read a news story uh, last week about two men who tragically lost their lives in an auto accident down in Louisiana. They had come up to a drawbridge that was up. One man got out of the car and lifted the arm that was blocking cars from proceeding. They got back in the car and proceeded to speed down the bridge because they thought they could jump the 160-foot gap in the drawbridge. And they encountered... The cold, hard truth that cars don't have the same relationship with gravity that they do in the movies. It doesn't work that way, and it plummeted to the water. and tragically, they lost their lives. Right? Gravity is a cold, hard truth. It does not care about your feelings about it. It does not care your opinion if gravity is good or not. You can't argue with it. You have no choice but to respect gravity. Right, Uh, My my kids encounter these kinds of cold, hard truths in my house quite often. Uh, This one's my personal favorite. It's when they refuse to eat their dinner. Uh, So what we'll often tell them to do, or that basically will happen if they don't eat their dinner, is that uh, we're going to put their dinner in the refrigerator, and then they can eat it for breakfast in the morning. And they think we're bluffing until the morning when they encounter the, the literally cold, hard truth that if they're hungry, the next thing they will eat is their dinner. No amount of whining or accusations or groveling or puppy eyes is going to change mommy and daddy's minds, right? It's just a cold, hard truth. Uh, For all of us, as we grow up, right, we have to learn these truths, and we have to organize our lives around these truths because it's not an option to expect these truths to accommodate us. So when you become an adult... You have to work. You just, you gotta work, right? You you need to go to the dentist twice a year or your teeth are gonna fall out. I tried to avoid that in my 20s, all right? It didn't work. Uh, Swiping a credit card means you owe someone money and they're gonna charge you crazy interest, right? That's just the cold, hard truth. I think we get the point. But this morning, what I want us to do is I, I want us to look at two texts in the Bible where we see people encounter a truth like this. And let me tell you up front, when we read these texts, these are hard Bible passages to read. These Bible passages are in the category of the the kind of scriptures where we go, ooh, I wish that one wasn't in the Bible. But it's God's truth, and we need to understand why it's in there. Because when we read these, we're forced to face a truth like this. And it might be a truth that we don't want to be true. We want to negotiate with it. We want to find a way around it. But I think what we're going to see is it doesn't matter what we think about it. Like any cold, heart's truth, we can negotiate all we want. We can complain all we want, but it doesn't change reality. Okay, so here's, here's the first text that we're going to look at. It's going to be in Leviticus chapter 10. Just the first three verses, verses one to three, but let me give you the context before we read it uh, together this morning. So the book before Leviticus is the book of Exodus, and that begins with the story of God rescuing the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. So Israel is walking in the desert. They just left Egypt. They're headed to the promised land, this gorgeous land that God promised to give them, and they make a stop at Mount Sinai. And while they're at Mount Sinai, Moses goes on up the mountain to meet with God, and God gives him the law, all right? If you maybe seen the stories, you know these are the two tablets engraved, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law God gives to Moses. And as a part of this law, God gives his people instructions on how to build the tabernacle, All right, the tabernacle is a mobile temple. Think of it this just a tent, and it can be taken down and carried and set back up. And that's a place where people would worship God. This is where they would make sacrifices to God. Inside this tabernacle is this inner chamber called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. This was a chamber where they put this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, all right, this is what's pictured on the screen right here, actually. See the little image in gold? This is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box. Inside this box is the two tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. It, it symbolizes the Word and the presence of God. This box is encased in gold. And on top of the box is the mercy seat, which are these two cherubim, golden cherubim, which are like warrior angels, that are overshadowing this Ark of of the covenant. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we studied uh, Genesis 3, uh, and we learned that God placed a cherubim to guard the Garden of Eden after he kicked Adam and Eve out. He put a cherubim there so that they couldn't get back in to the Garden of Eden. And so think of this. The cherubim here on this image represents the fact that sinful, fallen mankind, is not welcome in the presence of God. Okay, that's what the cherubim represent. It's like, keep out. No, you are not welcome in the presence of God. And so you had this inner chamber in the tabernacle, and there's this thick curtain all the way around it, and embroidered on that curtain was cherubim. Again, there's just keep out. Sinful mankind not allowed in God's presence. Okay, so Exodus ends. Then we pick up Leviticus, Leviticus then gives us instructions on how worship and sacrifice in the temple or the tabernacle is supposed to work. And so God commissions this guy named Aaron. He's the first priest, high priest, who will facilitate all of this. And all of Aaron's sons will be commissioned as priests to facilitate worship in the tabernacle. So Leviticus chapter 8 is the installation of these priests. Leviticus 9 details the first worship service in the tabernacle. And then we get to Leviticus 10. So that's that's where we are now. And and this is the context, right? We are going to read about uh, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were priests commissioned by God to facilitate worship in the tabernacle. I know that was a lot of information, but I just wanted to set the scene for us, okay? And so just, just think about this. You have these two young guys. They just got commissioned to be priests. They're dressed in these ornate robes. They're important people, and they're young. Probably a lot of arrogant zeal inside of them, maybe. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But let's read to see what happens. Leviticus chapter 10 Verses one to three says this. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, something you burn incense in, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them. And they died for the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, Aaron's these, uh, Nadab and Abihu's father. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me. And I will reveal my glory before all the people. And Aaron remained silent. It was just a few days, first few days on the job for Nadab and Abihu as priests in this tabernacle. And what we know is that Nadab and Abihu performed a ritual that was not according to the very specific instructions that God had given. And what we also know from later scripture is that they did this inside the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, before the Ark of the Covenant. They went in unauthorized, did an unauthorized ritual before the ark, and this is what occurred. God immediately, without hesitation, strikes them dead. And this is what God says to Moses. We just read it, but verse three, God says, I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. This was the cold, hard truth that Nadab and Abihu encountered, that God is holy, that he commands reverence and obedience. And it is a grave sin to be flippant about his word and his glory. There's no negotiation. It doesn't matter if we're offended by this or if Aaron was offended by it. You know, I had a Bible professor in college who said that we need to actually take this story and take it out of our Bible. We need to remove it from Scripture because God would never act this violently or swiftly like this. But it doesn't matter what some academic professor says. God is holy, and he will demonstrate his holiness, and that professor will one day encounter the truth and will no longer be able to open his mouth like Aaron. God won't be impressed by the letters next to his name, right? God is holy, and he will be glorified. Let me give you one more example from 2 Samuel 6, if you want to make your way over there in your Bible to 2 Samuel 6. This is later on in Israel's history. Um, The Ark of the Covenant uh, had been captured by the Philistines, um, and then they returned it. Uh, to Israel, and Israel, uh, they, when they got the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines, they stored it in this town called Kiriath-Jerim, uh, and after a while, King David, if you recognize him from the Bible, becomes king of Israel, and he wants to get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to Jerusalem where it belongs, and that's where we set up here. 2 Samuel 6, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. It says, David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal-Judah. This is the same place as Kiriath-Jerim. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim, as we see on our image. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments and lyres and harps and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. I mean, they're praising God, having a worship service, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the Ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah as it is today. David feared the Lord That day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Why would God strike a man dead for preventing the ark of the covenant from falling to the ground? Sure, maybe he wasn't supposed to touch it, but his heart was pure. He had authentic motives, didn't he? See, the problem is God had given his people very specific instructions on how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. In Numbers chapter 4, you can read about this. God makes it very clear that the only people who are allowed to carry the Ark of the Covenant were the Kohathites, right? The Kohathites were a clan inside the greater tribe of Levi, the Levites of Israel, so you have a very specific group of people who were charged by God for the very specific task of transporting the ark. Right? This was their job right? to transport the ark. This is what they did. They were trained in it. They knew God's word on how to transport the ark. No one else is supposed to do it but them because they knew how to do it without this happening. The ark had to be transported in a very specific way. There were four golden rings on each corner of the ark. They put acacia wood through those rings so they could hold it without touching the ark. They had multiple people carrying it. So if someone stumbled, we wouldn't have an incident like this. And so what we have here is not as much of a failure of Uzzah as it is a failure of leadership of David an act of irreverence by David in how he oversaw the transportation of the ark. And Uzzah lost his life because David thought it was okay to transport the ark on a cart. And the text tells us in verse nine that David was afraid of God because David encounters the cold hard truth that God is holy And that when it comes to reverence and obedience, there's no middle ground. There's no negotiation. God will demonstrate his holiness and defend his glory. And the reason why I wanted us to look at these two passages this morning Uh, It's because we're in the midst of a sermon series right now called King Jesus. And this series is all about how our joy is found in submitting our life, surrendering our life to Jesus as our king. And as a part of this series, what we've been doing together is we've been building a theology, right? We're just simple statements on what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves, and we're building week by week uh, on this theology, right? You remember, I make you say these things out loud. I'm going to do it again uh, right now. So if you remember, the first week, we studied creation, and this was our statement, all right? So I want you to say this out loud with me. Hopefully, it'll come up on the screen here. This was our statement. Say this with me, ready? In love, God created me to not be the center of of my story. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. Right? And we studied how God created every one of us to be image bearers of God, meaning that our life's purpose would be to represent God, to, to live for Him, that He would be the center and, and the point. And in the second week, we studied the fall of mankind into sin. And this was our statement. So say this out loud with me. In sin, I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. Right, that the essence of sin is that we have rejected God and said, I don't wanna live for you, my life is not about you, I would rather live for myself. And we make ourselves the center of everything that we are. Last week, we studied examples of how living with ourselves at the center actually robs us of our joy. And this was our statement. Very simple. Say it with me. There is no joy when I am the center of my story. There is no joy when I'm the center of my story. And that's what we looked at last week. And so if you missed any of those three sermons, I really encourage you, go to our website, our podcast, and uh, go listen to those so you can get caught up. This is a series that builds on itself. But this week, here's what I want to add To our theology. Here it is. I'm gonna put it up. Say this with me God will be the center of my story, whether I like it or not. God will be the center of my story, whether I like it or not. This is what it means that God is holy. The very purpose of our lives and the very purpose of all of creation is to point to him, to give him glory, to submit to his word. And this is just one of those truths where there is no negotiation or ifs or buts. It doesn't matter how it makes us feel. God is holy. He's not asking to be the center of our lives. He demands it. And at the end of the day, he will be. At the center of our lives, whether we like it or not. Or when we think about Nadab and Abihu, if if they had a true reverence for God and if they wanted God to be the center of their lives, then they would have taken God seriously when it came to his instructions when it comes to the worship in the tabernacle. They would have understood that God wasn't kidding. Uh, When we think about David, if David was truly more motivated by giving God glory, by bringing the ark back to Jerusalem instead of giving himself glory for being the king who got the ark back to Jerusalem, then he would have taken very careful, given very careful attention to the way it was supposed to be transported. Here's the point. God is holy, he is given us his word, he is our creator, he is our king, he is demanded to be the center of our lives, and that is something we cannot be flippant about, even today. I believe that we have a problem in our churches today when it comes to being flippant about the holiness of God. Remember last week, we talked about the definition of secularism, secularism is the belief that humanity can achieve the kingdom, can achieve utopia, can achieve the world that we all long for and we all want by elevating ourselves and shedding off any external authority that would tell us what to do, especially the external authority that is God and his word. And one of the ways that secularism has leaked into the church is by diminishing our view of the holiness of God. Just drive around uh, the D.C. metropolitan area and look at church signs. There are church signs everywhere that say things like God is still speaking, things like that. And and certainly God can still speak today and he can do that in whatever way and shape and form he wants. But one thing that God has told us is that he will never contradict himself because he is unchanging. And so what this phrase is for a lot of churches, it's code, for the belief that we don't have to follow or submit to everything in here because some of it's archaic. That whatever our culture finds to be inappropriate or offensive or politically incorrect, we are free to just say, well, God is still speaking. He has released a revised edition of this. And we are free to decide what is included in that revised edition and what is not included in that revised edition. And just like Nadab and Abihu and David encountered this cold, hard truth of God's holiness, so will each and every human being. We will all one day have to face the holiness of God. Every single one of us will have a moment like Aaron. Same moment when he lost his sons where God demonstrated his holiness and he was silent. And this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to show you that this is really good news. I've been saying that the holiness of God is a cold, hard truth. And I'm just saying that because it's an English idiom for something that, you know, a truth that is set and established. And you can't argue with it. But the holiness of God is not cold and hard. It is the very basis of God's deep love for us. This is what we've been talking about this entire sermon series. In love, God created me not to be the center of my story. He created me to bear his image, to represent him, to follow him in his word, to revere his holiness. And to live my life with care for his glory and not my own. And God created us this way in love because it's when we live our lives revering the holiness of God where our joy is actually found. And when we begin to be flippant about the holiness of God, you're guaranteed for two things to happen. If we're flippant about the holiness of God, we will rationalize our sin every single time and we will cheapen the cross of Jesus Christ. I wanna explain these to you. We rationalize our sin When the holiness of God is not a source of conviction in our lives. Let me say that again. We rationalize our sin when the holiness of God is not a source of conviction in our lives. Meaning that my source of conviction is not, I don't want other people to see me do this. It's a holy God is watching me. In other words, when we don't revere God and his authority in our lives, we will find a reason to do whatever we wanna do or sin in whatever way we wanna sin. It's when we are flippant about the holiness of God when secularism will get a foothold in our faith. It's when we're flippant about the holiness of God where we will try to find loopholes in God's word and say, hey, where's the edge of sin? How close to sin can I get before God can't say anything? So when we're flipping about the holiness of God, where we begin to form habits of acceptable sins in our churches. Things like gossip and complaining and bitterness and cliques and worldliness. It just becomes normal in our church communities. And that's acceptable sins, it's none of the big ones. And the reality is, when we rationalize our sin, I want you to get this we volunteer ourselves for misery instead of joy. Because in order to continue to rationalize our sin, I want you to get this logic. If you want to continue to rationalize sin, we have to stay far from God because he's holy. We have to protect our conscience from conviction. We don't want to feel that. So we have to make sure our relationships at church stay superficial and they don't go deep. Because if we pursue intimacy with God, if we want to get close to God, if we pursue deep relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, you can't continue to rationalize sin. And life is miserable when we're trying to keep God at a distance and our relationships shallow. God's holiness is good news to us because when we take it seriously, when we we cannot rationalize sin, and it forces us to get real, to go deep, to be humble to be fully known, to not fake it anymore, to not just be driven by our egos instead of just keeping it on the surface. It's so much better to live life that way. And oh, is the church the place where we can all come in and we can drop the ego and we can begin to pursue deep relationship with one another because God is holy and it's also because of the cross of Jesus Christ. When we are flipping about the holiness of God, we also cheapen the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, Nadab and Abihu, they were struck down by God because they entered the most holy place and offered something to God against his instructions. I want you to look at one more text with me. A few chapters over in Leviticus 16, Just six chapters over from this incident, verses one to three. Look what it says it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way. Then the rest of the chapter details for us the only way that a priest could enter this most holy place. In order for a priest to enter this place, it had to be on a very specific day of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Yom Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition. It had to be a very specific way The priest would have to offer a sacrifice for himself, a blood sacrifice to cleanse him of his sin so that he would be pure as he entered. And then he would enter into the most holy place and he would offer another sacrifice on behalf of all of God's people so they would be cleansed from their sins. And I want you to understand something. In Hebrews chapter nine, go study this passage this afternoon. Just go read this. In Hebrews chapter nine, it explains to us that when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't enter the most holy place on the ground in the temple. He went before the real presence of God in heaven. The text says he went into the actual most holy place. And having lived a perfectly righteous life, Jesus Christ, he didn't have to offer sacrifice to purify himself to enter. He goes before his heavenly father, pure, righteous And instead of shedding the blood of some goat to purify temporarily the sins of God's people, he sheds his own blood. And because he was the perfect sacrifice, with his sacrifice, it ended all sacrifices. All blood sacrifices they were done his blood shed on the cross satisfies God's wrath against sin and insults to his holiness for all of eternity for those who call upon Jesus as their savior and it was necessary for Jesus the son of God the only man to live a perfectly righteous life to offer up himself on the cross precisely because God is holy And he takes sin seriously. It could only be Jesus who could do this. Because God is holy. God is so holy that the only way you and I can stand before the holiness of God and not have the same fate as Nadab or Bihu or Uzzah is through the cross of Jesus Christ through the blood of God's own son. God is so holy, there is not enough good deeds that we could do for a million years that would ever outweigh how we have insulted the holiness of God in our sin. God is so holy, our only shot is the mercy of the cross. God is so holy, all we have is grace and not merit. I want you to get this. If we're flippant about the holiness of God, then our salvation is based on merit. It's not based on grace. It's like a scale. If we have a high view of the holiness of God, then we have to have a high view of God's grace. Because if God is so holy, then there is no way I have a shot at being reconciled to God without his grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. If I have a low view of God's holiness, then I have a low view of God's grace. And I'm depending more on myself and my good deeds and how I live my life to be acceptable in the sight of God. You diminish holiness, you diminish grace every single time. We're flipping about the holiness of God. We cheapen the cross. We act as if the the cross of Jesus Christ was unnecessary for us to be right with God. So it's, it's good news to us this morning that God is holy because God's holiness is the foundation of his love for us. In love, God does not overlook our sin. He doesn't turn his back. He is not an unjust God. He is a perfectly just God and he's not okay with our sin. Even our little acceptable sins, they are insults to his holiness. He's not okay with it. But because of the cross, when we begin to take our sin seriously, we shouldn't feel condemnation. We should run to our Savior. Because God has dealt with our sin through Jesus on the cross. And so look at this text, Colossians chapter 1. Verses 21 to 22. I want you to understand this is what the cross has done if you call upon Jesus as your Savior. Paul says this. He says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions. Once you were an enemy of God. You were hostile in your mind against God. And that was proven through the way you lived your life. That's what he said but now he has reconciled you. Jesus has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you, look at this, holy, faultless, blameless before him. To the point where in Hebrews chapter 10, we are invited to come boldly before the throne of God, come boldly before his presence. If we still had the most holy place, we could come boldly inside Not have to fear what happened in Nadab and Abihu because of what Christ has done to purify us, make us holy and blameless and faultless in his sight. Right? No true Christian stands at the foot of the cross and is flippant about the holiness of God because they knew what Jesus had to do so they could be holy. I want us to be a church that reveres the holiness of God. A church that takes repentance seriously. Not because repentance is how we are accepted in God's sight, but because we love God. We want to live our lives for him. And we are not flippant about his holiness. I want us to be a church that points one another to Jesus as the one who makes us holy. But here's the truth that all of us need to think about this morning. We will all encounter the holiness of God. And he will be the center of our story, whether we like it or not. God will be glorified in the story of every single human being on this planet, no exception. Because God will avenge our sin against his holiness in every single human being. And that will happen in one of two ways, either through the cross or through judgment. God will be glorified in those who call upon Jesus as their savior, have their sins forgiven based on the blood of Jesus, and now live their lives in submission to God as their king, right? He will be glorified in their lives, his anger against their sin was put upon Jesus. Or God will be glorified in his judgment upon those who continue to live their lives with no repentance, without calling upon Jesus as their Savior. And so, my question for all of us how will God be glorified in your life? Because whether you like it or not, he will. And if you've called upon Jesus as your Savior and you have surrendered your life to God as your King, what I want to do is invite you this morning to celebrate that and to remember what Christ has done for you on the cross through taking this meal with your brothers and sisters in Christ communion. We eat a meal together regularly to remember what Christ has done so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. When we take bread and we break it and we remember that the body of Jesus was broken under the wrath of God as he was taking upon what you deserve for your sin. We take the cup and we drink it. We remember how the blood of Jesus was poured out so we could be cleansed of our sin and presented before God as holy and blameless. And so this morning, I just wanna invite you to come forward. After I pray, I'll pray for us. Come forward when you're ready. Take a few moments, grab the bread, grab the juice, and just remember what Christ has done for you. Celebrate what Christ has done for you. But if you've not called upon Jesus as your savior and surrendered your life to God, there is no better time to do that than right now this meal before us, the bread and the cup, it's not open to those who do not trust in Christ as their savior. God is holy and that is a truth that you cannot avoid and the weight of that truth will not be something you will be able to overcome. You need a savior. We need intervention. The grace of God And so if you'd like to talk or pray with someone this morning so that you can trust in Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to come forward. We're going to have prayer ministers up front, the LeMays, Nick, Jones. We're going to have people up front here. They'll come up during communion and our last song and even after our service. And if you want to come up and pray with them, talk with them, or even tell them, I I think I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ and to trust in him as my savior. They would love to pray with you in that. And then they would even love to serve you your first meal so you can remember what Christ has done for you. How will God be glorified in your life? So I just want us to close our time together reflecting on the holiness of God as we take communion together and praising God for his holiness, celebrating him through song, And then as we leave here, living our lives, revering his holiness. Let me pray for us, and then I invite you to come forward. God, in this place, we bow before your holiness. You are set apart. There is none like you. And you are good in everything that you do and everything that you command. As we read earlier in Isaiah, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to submit to your holiness and your word and to trust you. And God, we praise you that when we were your enemy, when we were hostile, when we did not love you, when we did not submit to you, in your grace, you sent a savior. God, we are nothing without the grace of your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we come forward and we take of the bread and we take of the cup, that, Lord, you would, in a very sweet and gentle way, remind us of the depths of your holiness and the depths of your grace. And, Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not know you and not has trusted you as their Savior, I pray, Lord, now that you would reveal yourself to them in a way that they cannot deny And they would give all of their lives to you. We love you, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can come forward when you're ready.